Today we're going to discuss God's omnipotence, and we're going to remember something from old. We are told to remember the former things of old, and the purpose for remembering those former things is stated in the Bible, in Scripture. It is to exhort us, to remind us that God is almighty, that he is God, he is supreme, he is awesome. He will bring his will to pass. Let's begin by turning to Ephesians chapter 1, a familiar passage as we begin the sermon. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Verse 3 reads that God is to be blessed, the Father, uh, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And verse 4 records that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So God called us, he chose us before the foundation of the world for a purpose that we should be holy without blame before him. Verse 5, we are predestined, uh, he predestined us uh, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. It is God's good pleasure that we would inherit eternal life. It's his good pleasure that we would overcome ourselves, Satan, sin, society, and achieve this purpose that he has called us to. That is his good pleasure. Let's drop down a couple verses to verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. We have an inheritance. We've not received that inheritance yet, but we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him. There we see again, God is working out a great purpose. He's working out a great purpose on this earth and with us, very intimately with us. So we have been called, and he is working with us so that we may obtain, verse 11, an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God will bring his will to pass, brethren. He is almighty, he is supreme, and he will bring his will to pass. And we are going to remember a former thing of old, a true story. We'll use the Bible and we'll use some writing some histories outside of the Bible to remember these former things. And the purpose is to remind ourselves that God is awesome, that God is awesome and he will bring his will to pass. And he wants us to be part of that will. He wants us to be an active participant in what he is doing. Verse 12 of Ephesians 1 verse of Ephesians chapter 1 that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. We must have, have and develop faith, trust in Christ, in order for us to accomplish his will. And again, one way that we develop this faith, that we build this faith, is to remember the former things of old. We're told that we develop faith by reading and studying our Bibles, by reading and meditating on what God has done, In times past. Before we get to the body of the sermon, let's turn quickly to Romans chapter 8. I want to continue with this 
this thought. I want to build upon this, this concept, this principle that God is working out a purpose on this earth, that we have been called for a purpose, that we are special. Romans chapter 8. Now, we have our job to do, and as we'll see in a minute, it's not once saved, always saved. And we'll make that very clear in just a moment. But let's read what Scripture says. This is the Word of God, Romans 8, verse 28. Now, we often quote Romans 8, 28, but we're going to also notice verses 29 and 30 for a very important reason. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We know that everything will work together for good if we put our faith in God, if we behave righteously, if we allow him to lead us, if we submit to him. But let's notice in verse 29, and you're familiar with this passage, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's desire is that we would join Jesus Christ and we would be part of that Elohim family. We would become part of that God family, the firstborn among many brethren. And Romans 8, verse 29 is very clear that God foreknew. The word there is prognosto, and it means he had foreknowledge of us, and he decided to call us for a purpose. And the second word there, as you all know, predestined, is proorizio, and that means he decided, he appointed. But he decided and appointed us for a purpose, and we have to work with him to achieve that purpose. It is not once saved, always saved. We have a work to do. We have to submit ourselves to Christ. We have to allow him to work in us. As Dr. Meredith exhorts us over and over, it's Christ's faith in us. That's how we overcome. But God is working out a purpose with each one of you sitting in this room today with each one of us. And he's an almighty, all-powerful, supreme, awesome, omnipotent God. And he has brought things to pass throughout time that are not recorded in the pages of history, in the pages of Scripture, that I look forward, and I know you do as well, to, to learning about in the kingdom of God. Won't it be awesome when we get to talk to Moses and Abraham and Noah and we get to learn? What about the time between Adam and the flood? So many stories, so many events that God brought to pass because he is supreme. But brethren, he is bringing events to pass in our lives and with his church. And he is awesome. He is supreme. And so we are going to remember the former things of old and hopefully be encouraged to stand in awe between God's, before God's omnipotence. That's one of the goals today is to encourage us to stand in awe before God's omnipotence. I'd also like to encourage us to be reminded that we have to often wait patiently for him to perform his will. That's another objective in today's sermon, that we have to sometimes wait patiently for him to perform his will. Five years, ten years, seventy years. And thirdly, that we must be willing to do what he wills of us. We must be willing to do what he wills of us. It is his will, his desire that we inherit eternal life. He can bring his will to pass. But that doesn't mean we're robots. We have to accept Christ in us. We have to submit ourselves to his will. 
We have to resist Satan, sin, society, self every day. But if we do these things, our almighty supreme God will bring his will to pass, and you can be in the first resurrection. Now, I mentioned that it's not once saved, always saved. We know Deuteronomy 30.19, let's not turn there for sake of time, but Deuteronomy 30.19 makes it very clear that God sets before his people life and death, blessings and cursings, and we are to choose life. We are to choose life. We have to make a choice. <clears throat> let's turn to 1 Peter 4, verse 17. Another possibly familiar scripture to make this point, but before we continue, let's make sure we are clear about this, brethren, that although we serve an almighty, all-powerful, supreme God, an awesome God, that who will bring his will to pass, who desires us to be among the first fruits, and he can do, he can accomplish his will. He can perform his will. <clears throat> but we are free moral agents. We can choose to obey, submit, Keep his law, keep the commandments, grow in faith, grow in grace, grow in the fruits of the Spirit, or not. We have our part to play. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. 1 Peter 4, verse 17. <clears throat> for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. We are the house of God. The church of God is the house of God. And we are under judgment now. Judgment is upon us now. Are we going to be obedient to God's will? Are we going to do his work? Are we going to stand in awe before him? The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. <clears throat> and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will be the end of those who reject the truth, reject God, reject the gospel? We are told to remember the former things of old. I'd like to introduce a historic character to you now. He's someone you know. And I won't reveal his name for a few minutes. <clears throat> I'd like to begin by telling you a story about a young boy. This young boy, <clears throat> true story, this young boy, more than two millennia ago, finds himself on a dusty street in the kingdom of media. And he's playing a game with his friends. He's 10 years old. He's exactly 10. And he's playing a game with his friends, and the game is called Kings. The game is called Kings. And this young boy is elected to be the king. He's appointed to be the king. And so... <clears throat> In that function of king, he issues orders, issues decrees. And one of the young friends of his, the son of a nobleman, he refuses to follow this young boy's decrees, this young boy's instructions. You know this young boy. God chose him to perform something mighty. Let's back up. Eleven years prior, eleven years prior, we're going to turn to scriptures in a moment, but I want to put you back 2,500 years ago in your mind so we can maybe a little bit more be in awe of God, what he can do, what he did. Let's back up before this young boy 
was born. About 11 years prior, there's a Median king named Astyagus. If you're taking notes, uh, the English spelling would be A-S-T-Y-A-G-E-S. A-S-T-Y-A-G-E-S. And I'm going to give you a few names from history here, so you may want to jot them down just to be able to follow the story. But this Median king named Astyagus began to have a number of dreams. He began to have a number of dreams. And his court magi, magicians, the Bible will refer to them as diviners and babblers. The Bible will refer to them as diviners and babblers. His court magi interpret the dreams uh, accurately, and it puts fear into this king's heart. The diviners interpret the dreams that this king's daughter, who was newly pregnant, will give birth to a young boy, a prince, who will eventually overthrow Astyagus. Astyagus, worried for his life and his throne, commands a trusted servant named Harpagus, H-A-R-P-A-G-U-S, Again, if you're taking notes, H-A-R-P-A-G-U-S. He commands Harpagus, who is his steward, to steal the boy when the baby's born. The baby wasn't born yet. And to take the baby out into a field and expose it to the elements and kill it. It's now 590 B.C. And the young prince is born. The young prince is born. Harpagus, the steward, the servant of Astyagus... He obeyed his king to a point. He did steal the newborn infant from uh, the king's daughter. But he could not bring himself to murder the baby. He was fearful that if he murdered the baby, eventually the king, his lord, would regret it and he would suffer the consequences. So instead he took the baby and he gave the baby to a farmer, to a, a peasant farmer. Herodotus, the Greek historian, he lived in the uh, 5th century B.C. He recorded around uh, 484, 425. He recorded this in his book, The Histories. He recounts the story how these poor peasant farmers raised this young prince, and they didn't know who he was. The steward Harpagus took this baby to these, these farmers, and he did not tell the farmers who the prince was. It would have been suicide for him. Because he was disobeying the king in not murdering the young baby. Herodotus records how the farmers raised the baby. He was unaware of who he was. A couple questions. A couple questions. Why did King Astyagus have these dreams about his daughter giving birth to a son who would overthrow his kingdom? Why was the young prince not killed by Astyagus' servant? Why was he instead raised secretly by a farming, a farming couple, by peasant farmers? And why did he find himself in a dusty street ten years later playing the game of kings? And that game would change history. That game would change history. Well, there are Some answers. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. One of the reasons 
that this took place. And one of the reasons that Astyagus's uh, sorcerers uh, dreamt these, uh, interpreted the dreams, and interpreted them ap- accurately, by the way, is that we do fight against a very real world of a spirit world of dark forces. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's turn there. And these dark forces were aware of some prophecies. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. We read this frequently and we remind ourselves that we are to take up the whole armor of God because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And you know the passage. We wrestle against principalities, powers, the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. But brethren, how much more supreme is God to these powers of darkness? There's no comparison. There's no comparison. God is supreme. And these dark forces, they were at work back then just like they're at work now. And we deal with these dark forces, don't we? We know that Satan is the god of this age. We know he casts his thoughts. We know that he largely controls and manipulates society. We know that we are not of this world, but we live in this world, and we struggle against these forces. But God is so much more supreme, there is no comparison. And those forces were at work 2,500 years ago. What's another reason that these events took place? Let's turn back to Daniel chapter 4, maybe more of a of a uh, direct cause for these events to take place. Daniel chapter 4. God was going to work out his will according to his time with whom he chose, and his will would come to pass. And the babblers and the magi and the diviners would be frustrated confounded because God is supreme. Daniel 4, verse 17. We know the story where Nebuchadnezzar is learning a a painful lesson and Daniel 4, verse 17 relates that there was a decision, a decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order to know that the in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men we actually have a little insight here into into God's throne into into to God's government there's a council that's that's taking place or has taken place here and a decision had been arrived at and what was the purpose of that decision and this of course relates to Nebuchadnezzar which is a century or so before the events we're talking about uh, with this young young boy young man The purpose was so that the living, verse 17, may know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives those kingdoms to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. There's so many lessons from this passage right here. God is working with a young boy who escaped murder, who was raised by a shepherd, who was raised as the son of a slave, And that young boy didn't know, and his adoptive parents didn't know who he was, the son of a king. He was the lowest, and God was going to give a kingdom to that young boy. That was God's will. You know, God desires to give a kingdom to us 
Now you, you, the parallel is so clear, you, we, we all see that. And we're low. We're the weak of the world. So what? God is omnipotent, supreme. He will accomplish his will. He will accomplish his will. He is almighty. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 46. We're getting closer and closer to revealing who this young boy is. Probably many of you have guessed who he is. Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46 verse 9. Here we are told to remember the former things of old, which we're doing in the sermon today. Remember the former things of old. For what purpose? Not just because it's entertaining or exciting, but there's a reason we remember these things of old that God recorded for us today. The purpose is stated right here. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. There is none like God. These principalities of darkness that were actually accurately revealing to Astyagus the interpretation of the dreams, they don't challenge God. Satan doesn't challenge God. False gods don't challenge God. There is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Verse 10, declaring the end From the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God will perform his pleasure. It is his will to bring many sons to glory, so that Christ will be the first among many brethren. Now, it's up to us whether or not we make it, Judgment is upon us. We have to choose. But God will accomplish his will. Christ will return. He will establish his kingdom. And there will be that rejoicing that we heard about uh, in in the special music. When our king returns. God will accomplish his will. You may have guessed the name of the young boy. He is Cyrus. Cyrus, God's anointed. The title of the sermon is simply Cyrus, God's anointed. God foreknew and foreordained Cyrus for a purpose. But you know, brethren, we don't have time to uh, digress, but uh, Cyrus, we'll see him in the great white throne judgment. We'll see him in the great white throne judgment. I look forward to seeing him. He, God used him mightily. He called him Meshach, anointed. But Cyrus didn't get it. You'll see later. He still worshipped Marduk. He gave Marduk credit for overthrowing uh, Babylon. But we are told to remember the former things of old so that we can be reminded that God is God and there are none like him. Let's turn back to Jeremiah chapter 25 and let's, let's pursue the story of Cyrus freeing the Jews from captivity and God working out his will 2,500 years ago. And let's hopefully be encouraged by it and learn some lessons, brethren. Jeremiah 25, verse 8. What are some of those lessons? Again, number one, that we will be encouraged to stand in awe before God. 
that he is omnipotent. Number two, that we will be willing and be encouraged to wait faithfully for God. The Jews had to wait faithfully. We have to wait. We often have to wait. And number three, that when God reveals his, his will, that we will have the will to do his will. When God reveals his will to us, we will have the will to do his will. And we know what God's will is. His will is we keep the commandments, we preach the gospel, we grow in love toward one another. Jeremiah 25. Here's the famous uh, prophecy regarding the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah 25. Let's begin in verse 8. We'll read quickly. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my word. So God is pronouncing a a curse, judgment upon uh, the, the Jews and the Levites and some of the other tribes that were mingled in amongst them. Because you have not obeyed me, you've not heard my words. Verse 9, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants, against those nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing. So Judah's going to be devastated. God is passing judgment on his rebellious people. Verse 10, I will take from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness. The parallel between then and now, it can't escape us, brethren. Sin is rampant, sin is rife in society today. And what do people want? They want to party. They want to escape. They want to indulge in sin. All kinds of wickedness. That's what Israel did 2,500 years ago. That's what Israel's doing today. And so God passes judgment in verse 11. He says, this whole land will be a desolation and astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. God will bring devastation, desolation upon modern Israel as well, won't he? And modern Israel will go into captivity for three and a half years. God will bring his will to pass. The nations will learn lessons. We don't have to go into captivity, though. Verse 12, a promise. Then it shall come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans. For their iniquity, says the Lord, I will make it a perpetual desolation. This is going to happen again. God is going to use... Modern Assyria, a continuation of the Babylonian system, we'll we'll read about that later, to punish Israel, and then God will punish them. And then he'll establish his kingdom. So here we have the 70-year prophecy. Back to our story. Back to our story. You know he is Cyrus. But he's 10 years old, and he's playing in the street, and he doesn't know. That he's Cyrus. He wasn't called Cyrus at that time. We don't know what he was called at that time. Herodotus tells the story very well. I'm going to read from uh, Herodotus book one. When the boy was ten years old, it happened with regard to him as follows. And this made him known. This made him known. 
He was playing in the village in which there were stalls for oxen, and he was playing there, I say, with other boys of his age in the road. And the boys in their play chose uh, as their king this one who was called the son of the herdsman. And he set some of them to build palaces, and Herodotus goes on to describe this. I'll skip a little bit. Continuing, now one of these boys who was playing with the rest, the son of Artembris, another name for you, A-R-T-E-M-B-A-R-E-S, if you're taking notes, Artembris was none other than the governor of the city. The son of the governor. Why Why did this happen? God was performing his will. Why was the governor of the city playing with the son of a slave? And Cyrus was appointed king. God was performing his will. So, back to Herodotus. Now, one of these boys who was playing with the rest, the son of Artembris, a man of repute among the Medes, uh, Josephus and others record that he was the governor. Uh, That young boy did not do what Cyrus appointed him to do. Therefore, Cyrus bade the other boys seize him hand and foot. And when they had obeyed his command, he dealt with the boy very roughly, scourging him. But as soon as he was let go, and I'm going to paraphrase for sake of time, the son of Artembris ran to his daddy, ran to the governor. Artembris was not happy. He was not happy to see his son walk through the palace doors, bloodied shoulders. Continuing from Herodotus' account, Artembris, in the anger of the moment, went at once to the king, Astyagus. Remember Astyagus? Taking the boy with him and declared that he had suffered things which were unfitting and said, O king, by thy slave, the son of a herdsman, we have been thus outraged and showed him the shoulders of his son. When Astyagus heard this, he wished to punish the boy to avenge the honor of Artembris. God's performing his will. And so Artembris sent for the herdsmen and Cyrus. And when both were present, Astyagus looked at Cyrus. He didn't know he was his grandson. And he said, did you dare, being the son of so low a father as this, treat with such an unseemly insult the son of this man who is first in my favor? And Cyrus replied, Cyrus, God's anointed. Cyrus didn't have the Holy Spirit. That's clear. But I think God inspired Cyrus. And here's what Cyrus said. And this is recorded in a number of histories, not just Herodotus. He said, Master, I did so to him what was right. For the boys of the village of whom he also was one in their place set me up as king over them. For I appeared to them most fitted for this place. Now the other boys did what I commanded them, but this one disobeyed and paid no regard until at last he received the punishment that was his due. If therefore I am worthy to suffer any evil, here I stand before you. For sake of time, we won't read the rest, but Astyagus recognized Cyrus at that point. And the histories record that Astyagus Some histories say he fainted, some say he collapsed, but he disappeared for a while. He recognized that boy. The lines in Cyrus' face looked like his own, looked like his daughter's. 
Astyagus went back and took out revenge on the Magi. Remember the Magi? He slaughtered them. He slaughtered them. He also took revenge upon Harpagus, his servant. It was a very bloody time. And he began to murder the Magi, the diviners. He sent Cyrus away to grow up with his mother and with her husband, a Persian nobleman. A little more to the story. About ten more years go by, and Cyrus decides it's time to seek and take revenge upon his granddad. He calls his Persian servants together. He grew up with his mom, who was a princess. He called his Persian servants together and had them do some work in a field one day, and then the next day he threw a big banquet for them, and he said, what did you enjoy the most, the work in the field or the banquet? And they said, the banquet. And he said, instead of being slaves to the Medes, let's go conquer the Medes, and then you can be the rulers, and you can feast every day. And so they did. It was God's time for the Medes to overthrow, I'm sorry, for the Persians to overthrow the Medes, and then for the Persian Empire to overthrow the Babylonian Empire. Daniel chapter 5, verse 21. Daniel 5, verse 21. Daniel 5, 21. What was the lesson that God tried to get Nebuchadnezzar to understand when he made Nebuchadnezzar behave like an animal, he ate grass and so forth. At the end of verse 21, until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. It was time for Cyrus to overthrow his grandfather and for the Persian Empire to then overthrow the Babylonian Empire, and for God to release the Jews from captivity after their 70 years of punishment. Let's spend some time in Isaiah, and let's let God tell us the rest of the story through his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verse 1. I'm sorry, Isaiah 44, I'm sorry, Isaiah 44, verse 24. Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. He's speaking of Cyrus. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. Remember the Magi that interpreted the dream? God inserts here, prophetically, about 100 years before, or about 150 years before that happened, that God frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives the diviners mad. He's speaking of Astyagus' Magi in verse 25. This, This account is about Cyrus. This is about God appointing Cyrus to to take over the empire and to free the Jews. And right here, verse 25, 
God records that Astiog, he doesn't name Astiagus by name, but that the babblers, the astrologers, they will be frustrated, and they were. Verse 26, who confirms the word of his servant. Here God is saying, listen, I'm confirming the word of Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, my servants. My servants. God confirms the word of his servants. And he frustrates the signs of those who are evil. Verse 26, and performs the counsel of his messengers who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. So here we have a prophecy regarding Jerusalem becoming inhabited again after its 70 years of desolation. In verse 26, to the cities of Judah you shall be built and I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, speaking of Cyrus going through the, uh, the river into Babylon. We'll talk about that in a moment. And here he names Cyrus by name, and this was written about 700 B.C., about 100 years before Cyrus was even born. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings and so forth, to go before the double door, speaking of how he would enter into Babylon. God reigns supreme. We know the account. But brethren, when we're feeling small, when we're feeling like servants, like the lowest, remember Cyrus. Remember Cyrus. Stolen from his mom and given to slaves. And God had a great purpose for him. And he brought his will to pass. God can bring his will to pass. He desires that we make it into the kingdom. A much greater kingdom than Cyrus ruled. Let's... Notice in um, verse 13, verse 12 and well, verse 13. I have raised him up, Isaiah 45, verse 13. I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and he shall let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward. God records through Isaiah that the Jews would be released from captivity, not for ransom, He would just put it in Cyrus' mind to free the Jews. And Cyrus did. There's a cylinder called the Cyrus Cylinder. It exists in the British Museum. It's a clay cylinder. You can look it up on the internet. You can see it. And it's dated around 538, between 538 and 529 B.C. And on the Cyrus Cylinder, it records the following about Cyrus going into Babylon. When I, Cyrus speaking of himself, well disposed, entered Babylon, I established the seat of government in the royal palace amidst jubilation and rejoicing. And Marduk, Marduk, the great God, caused the inhabitants of Babylon to love me. Cyrus didn't give credit to Jehovah, to El. He... He didn't, he didn't get it. He wasn't converted. He continues, I sought daily to worship Marduk. My numerous troops moved about within the midst of Babylon. 
Herodotus and others record the same about how, Herod, about how Cyrus went into Babylon and overthrew Babylon. If God can perform his will with Cyrus, an unconverted peasant boy, how much more can he, confirm, can he perform his will with us? You know, in the sermonette, there was a question. We, are, we were asked, do we believe that, Christ, that with Christ living in us, we can do or we can achieve whatever God wants us to do? Do we believe that with Christ living in us, we can achieve whatever God wants us to do? Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Who's more important to God's plan, you or Cyrus? You're called to be a first fruit, a God being, to rule, live forever. Cyrus was just a mortal man called for a mortal purpose. Let's turn to Second Chronicles. We'll wrap up the story. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Did Cyrus perform God's will? Yes, he did. Second Chronicles 36 and verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that young servant who was playing the game of kings in a dusty street 2,500 years ago, who became king over the greatest empire of the age. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. God's will will be done, but God will also fulfill the word of his true anointed prophets. I just find it warming. I find it humbling how God loves and shows his love to those who have served him. Moses, Jeremiah. You know, God didn't have to record it this way, brethren. He could have said, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, I fulfilled my will. But instead he says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord... All credit, all glory, all power belongs to God. But notice how God phrases it. That the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. God gives a little note to his servant Jeremiah. Jeremiah performed God's will as well. He was a servant of God. God loved Jeremiah. God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. And then you know the decree. Verse 23, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? May the Lord his God uh, be with him and let him go up. And so Cyrus released the Jews from their captivity. Cyrus's pardon was predicted more than 150 years before this event. And he released the Jews exactly 70 years after they went into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. God performed his will. Dr. Meredith mentioned this in an article a few years ago, the 
September, October 2001, Tomorrow's World uh, issue. He wrote an article titled, How God Intervenes in World Affairs. And I love how Dr. Meredith uh, asked this question. He says, uh, so uh, Cyrus's army invaded the city in a totally unexpected manner and took the Babylonians by complete surprise. Was God surprised? Dr. Meredith asks. No. He had described nearly 200 years earlier how a leader specifically named Cyrus would conquer great kings by going through the two-leaved gates. You can read more about more of that in the uh, September, October 2001, Tomorrow's World. God is not surprised, brethren, when we suffer trials, when we unexpected events happen to us, when we're dealing with persecution, when we're struggling through life. God is in charge. God is in charge. He is omnipotent. Do we stand in awe of that? But remember the second point I asked. Do we patiently wait on him? The Jews waited 70 years. Did that mean God went away? No. He would perform his will according to his time. And remember the third question. When God makes his will known, will it be our will to perform his will? Will it be our will to perform his will? You know, after Cyrus's initial proclamation, it took many, many years and many departures of the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem. It w- there were four exoduses uh, into, <clears throat> into Jerusalem. The first group was led by uh, Shesh Bazar. I never can pronounce his name properly, but I think it's something like Shesh Bazar. And he was a descendant of King David. Then you know there was a second group that went out later under Zerubbabel, who was appointed governor of Jerusalem, and Joshua, the, the high priest. And then a third group under Ezra. And if you turn your page after Second Chronicles, you have the book of Ezra. And much of the book of Ezra just recounts Cyrus's decrees and the rebuilding of, of, of Jerusalem. And then there was a fourth group led by Nehemiah in 445. Tens of thousands of Jews returned from Babylonian exile to rebuild Jerusalem. The prophecy that God revealed about Cyrus did come to pass. But the Jews, we know some were zealous, some were not. Took them a while to rebuild the temple, didn't it? When God reveals his will will to us, we've got to be zealous to do his will. Remember, brethren, 1 Peter 4.17, judgment is now upon the house of God. Judgment is now upon the house of God. The Jews suffered for 70 years, and then God released them and told them, go build the temple. We are not suffering at all like the Jews suffered in Babylon. But we suffer. We suffer. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We know we're told to take up our, our cross and follow Christ. We know that through much tribulation we enter the kingdom. Notice what God reveals through the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5 verse 10. Verses 7, 8, 9 talk about Satan, our adversary. Verse 10. But may the God of all grace... 
God is gracious. The Jews did not deserve to be released from Babylonian captivity. We did not deserve to be called out of this world. We did not deserve to have our sins forgiven. We did not deserve to have a compassionate, forgiving high priest. But we have a compassionate, forgiving high priest. And we have an almighty, supreme God. May the God of all grace. That's the God we serve. Who called us to his eternal glory. By Christ Jesus. After you've suffered a while. You suffer. You suffer. I suffer. Job persecution. Neighbors persecution. Persecution we bring on ourselves because we put our foot in our mouth. Right? We, we suffer a while. After we have suffered a while. And we know the persecution at the end of the age will become you know, much more, more real, more severe than what we deal with now. But after you have suffered a while, may that God of grace, may he perfect us, establish us, strengthen us, settle us. God's desire, brethren, is that we become settled. We grow into that perfect man. Picturing or uh, like Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, the dominion, forever and ever. That's the God we serve. The God who brought that young boy out of obscurity and made him king and overthrew his grandfather and the Babylonian Empire. That young boy who released the Jews from captivity after their 70 years of punishment. That young boy pales in comparison, brethren, compared to you and me. Because Christ didn't live in him, but Christ lives in us if we're baptized, converted. Christ lives in us. And God is perfecting us. And yes, we endure a little suffering. But God is almighty. He is omnipotent. And his will will be done. Philippians 1, verse 6. Philippians 1, verse 6. Are we confident in God's supremacy, his omnipotence, his power, his love, his mercy, his desire to bring many sons and daughters? I know it's there's no gender in the kingdom and it's the male, but he wants men and women both. He wants us to become sons in the kingdom, first uh, uh, firstborn among many brethren. Are we confident in that? Philippians 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, as has been explained and as we've been reminded many times, this verse doesn't say, it does not say, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will make you inherit the kingdom of God, force you into into the kingdom of God. It's not what it says. It says the work is good. His work is good. The work that he's doing in us, even if we're suffering a little while, the work he is performing in us is good. His will is that we are first fruits. And he can bring his will to pass, but judgment is upon us. Judgment is upon us. Will we fear him in that proper fear Dr. Meredith mentions from time to time. 
Not as a mean God, but as a gracious, loving God. Who can bring Israel out of their 70 year captivity. Who can bring end time Israel out of their three and a half years of tribulation. Who can bring us out of the captivity and the bonds that we are often ensnared by in this world. Second Timothy 1 verse 8. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Part of the testimony of Jesus Christ, the witness of Jesus Christ, is what he has performed in years gone by. Of course, the testimony of Jesus Christ is the gospel of the kingdom of God. We are not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor here Paul, his prisoner, Paul asks them to share in his sufferings. Share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works. But according to his own purpose. And grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. That's how special we are. We read about Cyrus and we think, wow. Wow, he was this he became a king, a mighty king, king of Persia. Brethren, you're special to God. What does it say? What does the scripture say? He has called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, not because of our goodness, but because of his grace. We're told to remember the former things of old. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. We live at the end of an age, brethren. Cyrus played his important role over 2,000 years ago. We are playing a very important role today. Daniel chapter 2. We have Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel 2, we're going to skim through some of it. Now in the second year, verse 1 of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Let's drop down to verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed, To destroy the wise men. And Daniel says. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king. And I will tell the king. The interpretation. So Arioch quickly brought Daniel. Before the king and said to him. That he found a young man. One of the captives of Judah. Who will make known to the king. The interpretation. Here we have another. Slaughter of the magi. the, the, The wise men. And this is similar to the slaughter that Astyagus carried out uh, 150 or so years later. But Daniel had faith, didn't he? He had faith. You know, in the midst of that slaughter, he didn't go hide. He went to God on his knees. We know the account. 
He went to God in faith and he said, use me, use me. Here I am, God, use me. I will do your will. He had faith. We should have that that type of faith. So Daniel was taken to the king. And in verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? Verse 27, Daniel answered with confidence. He was willing to give an answer for the hope he had within him. And these are real events, brethren. Real events. We, we will be living through similar events. Will we have that faith that Daniel had? If we're asked by our boss, our neighbor, the mayor, the police, the king, the president, will we have the faith that Daniel had? So Daniel answered in the presence of the king and he said, The secret which the king has demanded the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Daniel gave the credit to God. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head upon your bed were these. And then he describes the vision, verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold. And, of course, that represented, as we know, the Babylonian kingdom. And then Daniel reveals the image of, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the chest and arms of silver. Who was that? That was going to be Cyrus and the Persian kingdom. And so Daniel interprets the dream. God gave him understanding. And he describes the belly and thighs of bronze and its legs of iron, its feet of uh, iron and, and clay. And then verse 34. Daniel reveals that the king saw a stone cut without hands, which struck the image on, on its feet of iron and clay and broke it to pieces, representing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that will be established on the earth and smash all the kingdoms of men. Hold your place, please, in Daniel chapter 2. Please hold your place in Daniel chapter 2. And let's turn to a familiar passage, but let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. We won't read all of the Olivet Prophecy, but we read in verse 3, Christ on the Mount of Olives and his disciples ask him what will occur at the end of the age. And in verse 4, he answers, take heed that no one deceives you. There will, many will come in my name saying, saying I am the Christ and will deceive many. And there will be wars and rumors of wars. It will be a traumatic time, such as what Daniel lived through. Such is what Daniel lived through. But where was Daniel's faith? Did Daniel see God as all-powerful, supreme? He absolutely did. He absolutely did. Will we have the faith of Daniel when these times are upon us? Verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and so forth. 
Verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation. There will be many false prophets who will deceive many. The love of many, verse 12, will grow cold. That's predicted. It's predicted that many will turn lukewarm. They won't have that zeal, that faith. They won't remember that God is almighty. They won't remember the former things of old and take it to heart and say, you know, God raised up this little son of a slave, this little slave boy who he didn't know he was a son of a king and used him to deliver the Jews out of exile. God parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could go through the Red Sea. Christ was a pillar of fire and a cloud and he led Israel out of Egypt. Many were raised from the dead. You know, God covered the earth with a flood, but save Noah. There will be many who won't remember. It won't be real to them, brethren. But will it be real to us? We are going to live in these times. We are going to live in these times. God has performed his will time and time again. And what is his will today? Verse 13, that we endure. That we endure. He who endures to the end shall be saved. And what is part of enduring? Verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. God has always asked his messengers, his servants, to declare his will, to deliver his message. Daniel declared to Nebuchadnezzar, what would happen throughout the ages. And Daniel could have been scared, and maybe he was, but he, he drew, drew, drew close enough to God to have the faith, the confidence to go talk to the king, even during the middle of the murder of his peers. Are we going to have that faith? I think we do. I think that's why we're here. I, I pray we will continue. I pray I will continue. Back to Daniel chapter 2. So then in verse 36, Daniel's revealing the dream and he reveals the interpretation to the king. And he says in verse 37, you, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell or beasts of the uh, of the field and birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over all of them. You are this head of gold. And then he discusses. Uh, an inferior kingdom that will rise up after him, and then the third kingdom of, of bronze, and then the fourth kingdom, in verse 40, which shall be of iron and, and break in pieces and shatter all things. We know that's, that pictures the, the Roman Empire. <clears throat> and notice verse 41, whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. And as we understand, that kingdom, that, that empire continues down to the end of the age. Those legs, those feet, they continue down to the end of the age until verse 44. In those days, at the very end of the age, years ahead of us, brethren, maybe not too many years ahead, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So here Daniel is preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. God will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. 
and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It will not be overthrown. And it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. That is the message that we believe. That is the gospel that we preach. And that is God's will. And he will bring his will to pass. Verse 45. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will happen, what will come to pass after this. And I know it's encouraging to, to all of us how Daniel you know, concludes. He says, the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. You know, I look forward to meeting Daniel. I hope I make it into the first resurrection. I, I'm, I know Daniel will. That confidence that he had. Do we have that confidence? Daniel lived during a tumultuous time. Look at the confidence he had. I look forward to meeting Daniel. I look forward to meeting Cyrus. Won't it be wonderful to meet him? Probably in the great white throne judgment. Work with him. God's will will come to pass. Will we be diligent to overcome? Will we remain diligent to preach the gospel? Will we, will we persevere to go through those open doors that God gives us? I do want to conclude by turning to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. God has given us examples from ancient times to remind us that He is God, that He is Almighty, that He rules supreme. He raises up kingdoms, He brings kingdoms down. He calls whom He will. He chose you. He chose you. You didn't, you didn't choose yourself. He chose you. And you're special to Him. And He wants you to perform His will. And He wants you to, to be part of performing His will. And how do we do that? Revelation chapter 3, very, very familiar to us. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these things. Says he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, which we understand symbolizes proper government, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens, which we understand pictures going through open doors to preach the gospel. God gave Daniel an opportunity, didn't he? To talk to the king, and Daniel did. God gives us an opportunity today. To be part of preaching the gospel. What, what a privilege. What a wonderful blessing it is. I know your works. Verse 8. I have set before you an open door. And no one can shut it. No one can. It's God's will that that door is not shut. Until he allows it to be shut. At the very very end. The gates of hell cannot prevail against God's church. Satan cannot overcome God's church. The world cannot overcome God's church because it is God's church. I know your works. See, I've set, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength. We're not the mighty. We're not the kings of the earth. 
but we belong to God. And He is almighty. He rules supreme. You have a little strength. You have kept my word and not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. And because we persevere, he will keep us from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And then there's a a warning, and it's an encouragement and a warning. It says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Brethren, let's hold fast. Let's remember the former things of old. Let's remember that our God is God. Let's stand before him in awe, in awe of his omnipotence. He can perform his will. Let's learn to wait patiently on him when we are tested, when we are tried. Let's learn to wait patiently on him to perform his will. Sometimes we have to be patient. And when he does reveal his will to us, let's be willing to do what he wills. Let's make his will our will. Let's learn the lessons from all of these figures from history, Daniel and others, and also from Cyrus, God's anointed.